This week's episode of The Obsessive Viewer is sponsored by Westworld FM, the latest podcast from the Midwest Podcast Network. Westworld FM seeks to dissect the latest episode of HBO's Westworld TV series every week. Join Alex and Nick as they take a deep dive into the latest TV show from producers Jonathan Nolan and J.J. Abrams. New episodes of the podcast are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more the day after the TV show airs. Check out the show at westworld.fm or search for Westworld FM on your favorite podcasting service. And thank you to Westworld FM and the Midwest Podcast Network for sponsoring this week's episode. Okay, we should be good to go. Okay. I want to welcome you all to our panel on Development Hell. Uh, Good morning. My name is Mike George. I'm a part of the programming team for Starbase Indy. I'd like to talk to you a little bit today about our... And thank you for for, for coming out for our panel discussion of abandoned sequels and unrealized passion projects. This is a panel about broken dreams, about the plans studios make to keep movie franchises going, and the unfinished work of some of Hollywood's greatest auteur directors. Um, I'm joined this morning by Matt Hurt, Hurt and Anthony Ramian from the Obsessive Viewer podcast. Matt, can you tell us a little about your podcasts and some of the things you talk about on the show? Absolutely. We are a weekly movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic each episode. So we'll do like uh, uh, Detective Movies was our 187th episode. And we'll do uh, some kind of themed themed episodes around a specific topic. And more often than not, or usually more frequently recently, words, um, we've been doing uh, movie reviews. So we did Doctor Strange, Arrival, uh, which was fantastic. If you guys haven't seen Arrival, go check it out. It's really great. Um, and most recently, Fantastic Beasts. Um, and so we're, we're a weekly movie and TV podcast. We're local to Indianapolis. We've branched out to do live events. We do a, a live event for horror filmmakers in the area in Irvington each year in October. It's called Shocktober in Irvington. Um, and we just we had a very successful one this year, and we're looking forward to doing it again next year. It's uh, And we're coming up on our 200th episode of the podcast. So we're really excited about that, and we're excited to be back at Starbase Indy here. Well, thank you. Um, now, while countless film projects are shelved every year, we're planning on talking about really only five of these projects here today during our panel. Um, the first project I'd like to talk about is... I'll get this to work. Well, technical difficulties. We'll go for it. <laughs> Happens every year. Yeah. <laughs> and well, first I'll talk about the Tron 3 project. Now, Steve Lisberger's 1982 classic broke new ground by building practical effects with computer animation still in its infancy. Uh, Tron brought audiences inside the computer world, a world at the time that was still unknown and slightly frightening. It took 28 years for audiences to reconnect with the Tron universe, but as quickly as Tron Legacy hit theaters in 2010, rumors began to swirl about a potential sequel. Stars Garrett Hedlund and Olivia Wilde were in talks to return, along with Bruce Boxleitner, who starred in the title role in the original film and in its sequel. Uh, the, the rumored story centered on Hedlund's character Sam Flynn's search to find his father, who seemingly sacrificed himself in the sequel's finale. Cillian Murphy, who offered audiences a small, 
albeit interesting cameo in Tron Legacy, was rumored to be returning as the film's villain, seeking revenge for the disgrace of his father, played by David Warner in the original. The sequel's modest success at the box office put plans for another Tron film on the back burner. The franchise was explored on a Disney Channel cartoon series in recent years and was reimagined in an amusement park ride at Disney's new theme park in Shanghai. The potential for a new film is still possible, even if after the Disney company called the project dead. But the prospects become dimmer and dimmer with each passing year. Anthony and Matt, um, are you uh, fans of the Tron franchise, and what do you hope to see with another sequel? Um, well, I haven't really seen the Tron movie, so I might bow out of this question, although they've always interested me. Um, so I would love to see it continue on, and I know that Disney, if Disney is responsible for the rights and everything for it, uh, they have the money to throw around for it. So um, hopefully we'll get to see it. Uh, Tiny, you, you're more in, into the uh, Tron franchise than I, or you're more in, initiated with it. So what do you think? Yeah, I've uh, I've seen both of the movies. Um, the original Tron came out five years before I was born, so I'm kind of dating myself a little bit there. Um, so I kind of missed the boat on the cult fervor for it. Um, I didn't see the movie till I was in my 20s, uh, and I agree the movie uh, is so original and it's it's visionary and groundbreaking. Um, but I, I kind of felt like it suffered from a sort of erratic filmmaking style. Um, I, I had a I had trouble connecting to it because of that. Um, I, I couldn't really keep up with it very well, to be honest. Maybe that's a little bit of a shortcoming on my on my part. Um, but I only finished the film with like a passing familiarity of what was really going on. Um, I wasn't necessarily hooked into the franchise uh, when I saw the original, but uh, I, I just had I knew it had so much potential to be incredible. Uh, either if it was remade or the franchise was continued, I, I was definitely interested in the franchise. Um, I was really excited about the sequel because it, it looked like it was going to uphold the original visual power and uh, the, the ideas in the original film, um, the universe. Uh, while the sequel, again, was just gorgeous, absolutely beautiful movie, um, I feel like it kind of suffered from a, a weak or an odd plot a little bit. Um, it was just kind of a weird destination with the, the digital race of beings was kind of a weird, weird direction to take it. Um, and, and I think it was kind of ambitious, which is a weird thing to say. I think, I think they aimed a little too high. Uh, I think the plot could have been simpler, more focused on the, the reuniting of this father-son. Um, but I, I, th- I think it was ultimately a good movie, though. I, I, did, I did give it good reviews on social media and our podcast. Um, and I, I, think it, I think it introduced, or at least has the potential to introduce, a whole new generation to the Tron franchise and I, I think it I think it did its job in that respect um, unfortunately it just didn't make a lot of money which that's you know that's the killer for a franchise now nowadays um, I just wish it would have made more money um, as far as my vision for the third movie uh, I'd really love to see them tap into virtual reality uh, which is becoming a thing now I mean you can do it on your phone anymore which it's it's becoming much more popular um, I think it'd be fascinating to see you know, the character of Clue try to, like, tap into the virtual reality database and use it to take over the physical world, something like that. I think that'd be kind of a cool end. Um, I don't think that's the direction that Disney was was looking to because of Killian Murphy's character, like uh, Mike mentioned. Um, either way, I, I don't care what they do, I'd love to see the third movie. I think the franchise deserves completion. 
um, and Disney owns the rights, and Disney is like God right now in the film world. <laughs> they have Marvel and Star Wars. They mm-hmm. can they can shell out a hundred million bucks for a third Tron movie right. with no problem. So I'd really love to see it see it made. I'd, I'd like to see another sequel made. Uh, like I mentioned before, the, you know, I'd like the theme of the third film to really be about fathers and sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Warner is one of my favorite character actors. He kind of went off the grid for about ten years, but now he's starting to work more in television and did some work for Doctor Who and things like that. Mm-hmm. He's starting to do convention appearances. So get him back as the villain character that he played in the first film, and then we have this son mentioned in the second will have a larger part in the third film if it ever gets gets made and basically be you know maybe tap into the virtual reality but definitely be about revenge and be about mm-hmm. fathers and sons and yeah. where did did is you know is Sam's father really dead you know mm-hmm. and then we could develop kind of hash out a really interesting story out of that so the, the next project I'd like to talk about is Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash. When uh, New Line Cinema purchased the rights to the Friday the 13th film franchise in the early 1990s, horror fans waited with weighted breath, bated breath for a matchup between Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees that almost never happened. Then in 2003, Freddy vs. Jason surprised audiences, giving fans of each franchise a little taste of what they loved and remembered. While neither side really won in the grudge match, fans were treated to a film that many felt would jumpstart both prospective franchises. But as time passed, Robert England retired his Freddy character, and both franchises suffered through what I consider some pretty weak remakes and relaunches. Um, for years, rumors swirled of the new Freddy vs. Jason film, um, adding the Evil Dead's reluctant hero, Ash Williams, into the mix. In the fall of 2007... The matchup was realized, but in a comic book form. Um, it, it was a sequel comic book series uh, that also um, included characters that had survived each of the franchises. So I thought that was very interesting. Matt, uh, do you think with the release and success of the new Ash vs. Evil Dead cable television series, do you think there may be renewed interest in this abandoned sequel? Uh, what would you like to see if it got made? So, I haven't seen Ash vs. the Evil Dead, um, and, I, and I haven't read the comics of the Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash, but to be honest, I wasn't really, I didn't know that this was a thing that, that was, you know, potentially meant to happen on film. But, I mean, it's funny because for me personally, I think that that's a great hook for a movie to have Ash against Freddy and Jason. I, I would like, that would be my interpretation of it, would be to have Ash kind of going up against these two titans of horror. And because both, both Freddy and Jason, they have their own, um, they have their own styles, their own unique styles and their own unique worlds. And I think that it would be fun to play with in those, uh, pl- to have those characters play with Ash in those, those worlds. Um, but even though Ash vs. Evil Dead is, uh, is successful and, and, it's, and it's big right now, um, I don't know if they would ever make this sequel um, or make this project because I think that there's a little bit of um, well, uh, there's a little bit of a uh, 
of a of a stigma against versus movies like this. I think I'm thinking of like Alien versus Predator. I I don't think that was very well received, and I I think that the studio may uh, that the studio may. Um, be a little hesitant to actually go forward with this, as much as as interesting as it would be. Um, but if they did go for it, uh, what I would like to see in it is just in a word, blood, gore. I think that it could be just a really fun gore fest, um, and it would just it would just be a delight to see these characters interact with each other. And I say that, and I say that about versus movies and team up movies. Even though we did get Batman v Superman, but that was also it was a it was a box office success. But critically and uh, uh, critically, it wasn't that well received. So I think that there is a little bit of a stigma against the team up movies or or the going up against each other movies versus movies um, right now. So I don't know if they would ever make it, but. Uh, but you're but you're right. The the remakes of Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street weren't great. I'm a, kind of an apologist for the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, remake, but it still it still isn't doesn't reach the full potential of what that franchise could could reach, in my opinion, because that concept is amazing. Well, I felt like in, with with the Nightmare on Elm Street remake that, mm-hmm. that Jackie Earl Haley took a character and he made it his own character mm-hmm. and. He was kind of the strength of that film. Mm-hmm. There were some elements that I liked, um, but m- for the most part, it was just him doing a good job, surrounded by a lot of things that didn't work. Yeah, I and, mean, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, I, I love the idea of, of micro dreaming or, or the uh, I think it's called micro dreaming, mm-hmm. where they where they just kind of they're they're so sleep deprived that they just jump into a dream state um i worked security third shift for almost 10 years um and i can relate with i can relate to that so much so that's a real thing and i love that they incorporated those micro naps into into the into the movie so unfortunately it just wasn't enough to garner a sequel to to really jump kickstart the franchise back Mm -hmm. And, and with this Ash for Freddy versus Jason versus Ash potential uh, team up, I mean, what you were mentioning about like versus movies getting, you know, critically panned a lot mm-hmm. of times is, is, is it's because it's kind of a cheap conceit in terms of writing, and critics mm-hmm. want something more than that. I think fans, it's fan service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what you do with a movie like this is you get. <laughs> You, you pay Robert England whatever he wants to come back and put the makeup on for mm-hmm. for you know and just you know make sure his kids have a trust fund or something like that <laughs> and and then you get <clears throat> you get Jason back and I don't know if we want to do Kane Hodder probably have to have Kane Hodder back mm-hmm. to play the character again and then to just make it a and what you mentioned about making it a gore fest that makes it fun and oh, that yeah. makes it what like the fans want to see the fans want to see like. Freddy, take your deepest fear and turn that into something, or your deepest desire and turn that into something that kills you. Oh, so oh, yeah. you don't like clowns. Here's a circus. I'll kill you. <laughs> and then, you know, Jason is just a kill, killing people in interesting ways mm-hmm. in, in those films. And that, so that's what you definitely want to see. And then and then you got a smart Alec, <laughs> like Ash, mm-hmm. in the middle of this project, in, in this middle of the story. And then you, you, there's just countless things. I think the big hurdle is with Ash versus Evil Dead is it's it's licensing issues and things yeah. like that with mm-hmm. characters. Um, if they could could 
make this work. You know, it'd be a nice love letter to the fans of both those franchises, but it's mm-hmm. been so long since the 80s that now it's right. the, the window, the light is getting dimmer mm-hmm. on the on the potential for that, even with this new TV series out. So mm-hmm. they're just going to definitely go in different directions. Because, I mean, a lot of young folks today probably haven't even heard of these characters, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because they're just not out yeah. in the public consciousness. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the Batman movies. Uh, now, uh, this, is a, this is a potential uh, sequel called Batman Triumph. It was a symbol that they came up with on the Internet. Uh, before Christopher Nolan relaunched the Batman film franchise with a darker, more realistic tone in 2005, the Batman franchise had skewed in many different directions. Uh, the initial blockbuster success of Tim Burton's Batman in 1989 had Warner Brothers salivating for a sequel. But Burton was reluctant to retake the franchise and decided to focus on Edward Scissorhands instead. Uh, When the studio allowed him carte blanche to make the sequel he wanted, Batman Returns was a little bit different. Uh, With the new production design aesthetic uh, that was more cartoonish and yet a, a darker tone to the film, many adult elements, uh, many fans and critics were disappointed. Uh, original plans for Batman uh, Returns included a, a return of Billy D. Williams as the Harvey Dent character that he played in Batman 89, in a part that would have seen uh, the origins of his villainous Two-Face character. But the studio decided to buy out Williams's contract, and his part was incorporated into the character that Christopher Walken brought to the screen in Batman Returns. There was also plans to bring the boy wonder Robin, uh, who was slated to be played by Marlon Wayans, into the story, uh, but the idea was nixed by Tim Burton. Anthony, uh, what do you think audiences would have seen with a Billy D. Williams Two-Face or a Robin introduced into Batman Returns? Um, I, I think fans would have been disappointed with both editions, and I'm sure that's a little controversial because they're, they're popular characters. Um, I, I don't mean that as a slight on either actor or the characters. Um, I, I only say that because I feel like any time the studio gives notes to the director, it usually goes bad. Um, it, it's, it's, it's in pursuit of profit, not art. You know, They want to get... The only thing they're interested in is butts in the seats. They're not interested in what makes sense for the story or what vision the director has. Um, and so I, I think that would be another example of, of the plague that is the, the clash between art and business that, that, that just kind of has a horrible effect on, on the film industry a lot of the time. So I, I think people would have been disappointed with it only for creative reasons, I, nothing against the characters or the actors. Um, I, I, think, I think Batman Returns is a great movie. I, I, think, I think it had a timing issue. Um, the fact that it's so different from the first Batman doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It's just different. Um, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Tim Burton, um, but I think when he has like a clear original vision, or original is the key word there, um, I think he's really special as a director. Um, but I think when he's trying to adapt some stuff, he kind of screws it up. Batman is an exception, um, but I mean, the Alice in Wonderland movie and some of that other stuff, I just wasn't wasn't very good. Um, so I, I think... I think when... Uh, I think when he made uh, Batman Returns, 
Um, he he wanted to go darker because that's more in tune with him as a director with his visions. So I think I think that made sense for him, but maybe people just weren't ready, weren't ready for it or something like that. Maybe the audiences just weren't there for it. Um, but I think it's still a good movie. Well, I, I think that in, in Tim Burton, in terms of a director, for me, the films that I love is kind of ended with. Edward Scissorhands. I, I, I like that Batman Returns is kind of his own vision, and it's a fun movie, and it's it's an unloved movie, so I always embrace those kind of movies that are kind of the... not the hugest blockbuster in the world, but they have their own sense of identity and things mm-hmm. like that. But I, I think one of the big things that Batman Returns uh, suffered from is, uh, you know... They had the, pr- the production designer from the first film to the second film. They had some, a kind of contract dispute with him where he couldn't come back. And he had uh, Anton first had built the, this giant set in England for the first Batman film. and just had this sense of gritty realism, which was, you know, what they were going for to try to contradict the idea that people had before that of Batman, which is the pam, bam, wow, <laughs> bang, um... Adam West Batman from the 60s and make it more realistic. Well, it, mm-hmm. you know, you get Batman Returns and it's kind of like Tim Burton's playing with his own toy set now. And mm-hmm. quite literally, there's like, you know, a lot of things were done on sets and, and you know, it, it's a different tone to the film because it's set in around Christmas. Um, you know, it wasn't released around Christmas. They pushed it back, so you have the summer release for the film, but it's set around Christmas, so it didn't. Maybe they should have waited a little bit longer, you know, to to make that work. But it's it's definitely it definitely has its like strong points as a sequel. I would have loved to see Billy D. Williams as Two Face, and he mm-hmm. to this day is excited. I think there's a there is you know constant a lot of a lot of fan artwork on this on the on the internet and and he you know very much interested in bringing the character back he said in interviews for um and he basically said that was the only reason he took the part in the first film because yeah. it wasn't like a starring role as he was like I get to play Two-Face when I mm-hmm. when I get you know and that of course never happened for him <laughs> they bought his contract out so so when Tim Burton kind of left the 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 Franchise with with Batman Returns, uh, the studio was hoping for 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 this franchise to continue. So this is a little bit of mixed success for Batman Returns. So they so Joel Schumacher was hired to direct the the next two sequels in the franchise, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. While his comedic, wider comic book tone was embraced by fans after Batman Forever, Batman and Robin seemed to push the envelope too far. Uh, Matt, were you happy with Batman and Robin, or do you think the film took the franchise in the wrong direction? Oh, that's a big uh, yes, that it it took the franchise in the wrong direction. And it's a shame somewhat, because the Batman franchise, Batman on film, is really kind of fascinating in that you have different directors having their different visions for it. And um, I obviously gravitate more toward Christopher Nolan's interpretation, but um, but what I found with, like, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, like, they have... They've become kind of uh, uh, punchlines for... N- no pun intended, punchlines, but um, 
for the uh, for the franchise of, of Batman on film and Batman Forever. I actually just rewatched it last night and it's uh, it's fun. It's it's fun and like you said, it's comedic. It has a lighter tone. It's more comic book. Uh, like in in the way that it's made, and it's kind of a nice throwback to the old Adam West Batman, and that's that's kind of it's a fun it's a fun movie. Uh, Jim Carrey is doing his Jim Carrey thing at the height of his Jim Carrey ness, so that's kind of hit or miss for people. But the thing about Batman and Robin, though, so you have Batman Forever kind of reestablishing a fun tone, a light tone. And then you put it into, and then you go into Batman and Robin, and it is just cranked up to eleven, and like they're they're adding Alicia Silverstone. Um, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger as the as Mister Freeze, and even though I I I pride myself on my love of puns. But oh my god, that's overboard in that movie. That's all the character was. It's the fun. yeah. It's it's so it's so cheesy and, and over the top. And there's some there's still some nice throwback to the old Adam West Batman in that. Like the opening scene um, where they're where they're fighting Mr. Freeze. Like they have like Batman and Robin are surrounded by the henchmen that are that are hockey players and they have like they hit their they hit their uh, feet together and they have ice skates so that they can fight them and it's it's so cheesy and campy but going forward in the movie it's it's hard to watch i like i i saw it uh when in around the time it came out and i thought it was fun but then again i was like 12 so so there's that but um but after that, like I, I can't sit down and watch it from beginning to end without thinking of the different iterations that we've had of Batman and how much better they are. So Batman and Robin, as as much as I am forgiving of Joel Schumacher with Batman Forever, and I think that it's a pretty solid, fun movie that you can't really take seriously, uh, Batman and Robin just is not is not great <laughs> it is not it's it just doesn't do it for me i can't i can't really uh watch it even under that uh that uh frame of mind and, and i hate to say this because I, I like a lot of this, this the work that he does and he's mm-hmm. a fun actor but i honestly feel like this that that schwarzenegger just pushed it mm-hmm. way over the top just way over the top as it would and I remember at the time Batman Returns came out, I was like, well, what's Tim Burton going to do next? What villain is he going to do next? Is he going to do Riddler or Two-Face? And I was, mm. I was thinking about Mr. Freeze at the time, and I was like, who should who should play Mr. Freeze? And I was like, maybe somebody like Patrick Stewart, because oh, I was a big mm. Star Trek Man. next-gen <laughs> fan at the time. But he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart wasn't a big star at that point until he got into the X-Men franchise. He was really... Mm-hmm. He did a movie called Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson and a movie called Masterminds. He was still kind of thought of as a... as a... as that... As a that TV other actor. captain from Star Trek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't really have his own skin. So, like, when you're talking about a Batman film, you've got to have, like, a, a huge name over the marquee for the villain. And so that was... It would have certainly been a more cerebral take if we had got mm-hmm. Patrick in that, which is which, which is which is really what you need yeah. for Freeze. Well, it's, it's sort of like you almost have to use as a touchstone what Paul Dini and the guys did for the animated 
And right. they turned all the characters into because they had five years and almost 100 episodes to do. And, and to me, character development. To me, that the animated series that that's Michael Ansara, pronouncing the actor's name, played the Klingon captain in the original right. series. That's the best Mr. Well, series I've seen. Paul Hammonds, you know, yeah, is the Riddlers, and he is, is Joker. Yeah. Joker, yeah. yeah. So oh yeah. The thing is, you, you, you've got. Well, and it, it seemed like they found the best voice actors for different characters on the animated series. Just to digress into the animated series mm-hmm. a little bit, like. If you if you haven't watched Batman the Animated Series, best animated cartoon, best cartoon, cartoon ever, well, yeah. best have, animated cartoon have ever. Have all of this: Batman, Superman, Justice League, mm-hmm. and they're all tied together. They are all interrelated. They all, I mean, when they've got, jeez, uh, 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 who, who plays Granny Goodness? Um, 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 the guy from uh, uh, Mary Tyler Moore Show. Uh, Ed Asner plays Brady Goodness <laughs> from from Apocalypse. The casting of in that in those three television series is Michael Ironside as Apocalypse. You know, you know, your God has nothing to do with this. I am your God. I am Darkseid. Mm-hmm. You know, and when they have you know television, television is not supposed to make you cry and cartoons. <laughs> Are not supposed to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they took they took Batman there. That's why the Christopher Nolan series and the later Superman movies all reference the animated series because mm-hmm. it was so well made. And, and in the TV oh, yeah. series, when did Lois Lane start calling Clark Kent Smallville after the animated series? Mm-hmm. You know when did. You know, Mom Paul can't stay alive after you know, you know, in, in, in the in the DC universe after the animated series. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. In the in the Batman animated series, there's actually a two part episode with Mister Freeze that's phenomenal. And I, inc- incidentally enough, uh, I think the the character they drew it looks a lot like Patrick Stewart, which is kind of funny. He's kind of a balding, <laughs> older white man. It's kind of that that would make a lot of sense, but the character is so much more somber and tortured in those mm. in those episodes. Oh, you and that's you much better interpret. Yeah, I, I I was sad as a twenty five year old man watching the animated series, <laughs> watching Mister Freeze, you know, be incredibly depressed over the death of his wife. It's and then when she very well then, done. Then when they reanimate her and she rejects him, right? And then he's going, "I have nothing to live for. Mm-hmm. This city is not going to burn. It is going to go. It is right. It's very it's powerful." Like, the hell with everyone. everyone else. The hell with you. Everyone's going to die. And yeah. you go, okay, Batman's going to have to kill somebody. So we got Batman oh, and Robin, and the studio at the time was really hoping for that to be a commercial success, <laughs> or as successful as Batman Forever. So they started planning for another Schumacher sequel. Now, Batman Triumphant was expected to feature the the villain Scarecrow, uh, who was rumored to be played by either Nicolas Cage or Howard Stern. I'd heard both as potential Uh-oh. picks for that part. Um, yeah, possibly. That, uh-huh. That's a good Goldblum would have been really good. Oh, yeah. yeah Goldblum would have been interesting. <laughs> the, uh, the film was also rumored to feature the return of uh, 
past Batman villains like Joker and Penguin. Uh, and kind of with the Scarecrow uh, character, he's got that fear toxin, so he was going to have mm-hmm. Batman was going to have these nightmare visions, and you know the Penguin and the Joker, Catwoman, all these different characters were going to return. And they were talking about potentially, you know, hire trying to get Jack Nicholson to come back and play the Joker again in these flashbacks, which would have been really weird with Joel Schumacher directing. Yeah. Uh, so the character, I, I just, I'm glad that didn't happen. You know, bringing back Danny DeVito, bringing back these different actors in a cameo role, they have to open their checkbook mm-hmm. um, yeah. to get that to happen. Um, uh, Anthony, do you think that the the studio could have convinced Jack Nicholson to come back? And and what do you think fans would have seen um, if this sequel in general had found its way onto the screen? Uh, I I really don't think there's any way they could have convinced Jack Nicholson to come back. I think he was entering an entirely different era of his career in the late '90s or so when this would have come out. Um, the just like the physicality and the the, the mania that the Joker commands probably was a little bit. Uh, beyond his ambitions at the time. Not that he couldn't have done it, because we saw him do it, um, but I think I just don't think he would have wanted to, really. And he didn't need the money at the time. Um, he's Yeah, I, I just did not see him coming back uh, for something like that. But as far as the realization of the sequel, um, I think the fans would have been receptive to seeing Scarecrow and some of those other villains come back. Um, we, we tend to mock the Joel Schumacher movies, um, and they deserve it, frankly, but uh, but at the same time, they were successful movies. If, if you look at what the studios wanted to accomplish and you look at it financially, they made a crap ton of money, and that's really what the studios wanted. You know, I talked about corporate greed earlier, the, you know, the studio greed, it's all about the dollar. They wanted to make money, and they wanted to sell toys and mm-hmm. merchandise, and they did that with those movies. So you could say it's successful. Um, and, you know, can you really fault Joel Schumacher for, for kind of doing his job? I mean, mm-hmm. he, he did his job. Um but, you know, a decade later, Christopher Nolan used Scarecrow to really great effect uh, in Batman Begins, and fans were really receptive to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, timing, I think, was part of it. I think fans were ready for a more darker interpretation of it. Um, you know, those char- the characters in, in Batman are insane. <laughs> Batman himself literally has mental issues. And it's like, I, I think it's difficult to go the lighter tone with Batman because I think some of the more popular stories throughout his throughout the Batman comics have been the darker stuff you know in the 80s and the the, the, the villains are just nuts and I think it makes sense to be darker and you know people need to die and things need to go wrong and it needs to be dark I think I think it makes sense um, so I, I don't know if that notion would have been embraced in the late 90s you know, some people may have been riding high from the Joel Schumacher movies and they wouldn't have liked the darker thing, kind of like with uh, Batman Returns. I think, you know, that could have happened as well. So it's hard to say, but, but you know, ten years later it worked. And mm-hmm. so I, 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 I think maybe it's a, the reason... I think since Batman Triumphant never saw the light of day, I think it really helped Christopher Nolan years later when he made his trilogy. So... Uh, Interpret that as you will. I mean, yeah. it could have been good, it could have been bad. And if I'm not mistaken, I think in between those, uh, there was uh, um, Darren Aronofsky was planning to make, uh, I think, Batman Year One. I think uh, a lot of that development went into, or at least, uh, I don't know if it went into Christopher Nolan creating it, but it was supposed to be a dark tone 
as well. Um, and I think that's just kind of where, as a culture, we were headed toward. I don't, I don't, I think that's just kind of what the audience wanted at that time. Like with Joel Schumacher, like you said, it, I think those movies were kind of designed to sell toys more than anything else. And uh, I think we were in it, we're in a, at the time that Nolan brought out Batman Begins and when all that stuff was going on, we were in a place culturally where we weren't really wanting to buy toys. Um, so I think that that is also an interesting way to view Batman movies is that the way that they're created is uh, somewhat dictated by the state of the world and the culture that we're in. And I think that it's an interesting way to look at production of Batman movies and how it's uh, interpreted. Yeah. Um, I... I was just curious. Pre-Nolan, uh, there was a Batman uh, fan film made that was spectacular for as short as it was. It was Batman Dead End. Hmm. Dead End. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, it, if you ever get the chance to see it. It's excellent. It, it is nice. fantastic. It was, until Nolan's Batman, it was the best Batman I'd ever seen on screen. Oh, wow. 30,000 bucks into it just to do a short yeah. clip. Oh, you know, that's it was, awesome. It was yeah. like 14 minutes, something mm-hmm. like that. And it was Batman fighting the Joker, fighting uh, Predator. Oh, uh, wow. Cool. The Predator and the Alien <laughs> intermingled in, yes. this, in, the, in the confrontation between huh. Batman and, and the, the Joker. Joker. Wow. And Interesting. Joker got a first taste of the... Alien, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, uh, yeah no spoilers. Yeah. Cholera. Okay. C-O-L-L-O-R-A. And a guy that played yes. Batman, phenomenal. Nice. He was cool. excellent. Straight off the comic book, man. It was, That's it was awesome. The costume was great. The way they filmed him landing yeah. the and the cave coming out. Cave coming out of the water. It's just beautiful. Very and cool. The aliens looked like they just jumped off the, uh, the movie screen from yep. the yeah. movies. I mean, they really did a spectacular yeah. job. That's cool. awesome. And that's called Batman Dead End? Batman, Batman Dead, Dead End. End. Sweet. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Hopefully it's on YouTube or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And I know that they have... Uh, nice. But then, uh, then they're also, but you'll see all the side of all the other Batman... Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a few... few uh, Fan films. The one where uh, yeah, there's, there's, one, there's one intriguing one where Batman actually gets captured by his victim, tortured and uh, uh, killed, dumped in the river. Right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Remember that one? I don't remember that one. Oh, wow. Guys, remember that one? Huh. I don't know. But then, yeah. but then they also have the the short clip they did uh, from um, uh, Frank Miller mm. Batman, where. Uh, the Batman, uh, the Frank Miller Batman, is fighting the mutants, and it's cool. Michael Ironside doing the voice of, of the elderly Batman, and you're going, no, no, that's the animated Batman I want to see. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice, cool. Let's see Dead End if you get the chance. Yeah, yeah I'll definitely check that yeah, out. Check out those other ones, you know. Yeah, that one where he gets killed by his victim. He gets pumped full of drugs and everything while he's wow. being tortured. That's if, crazy. If, you check, <laughs> if you check comic book fan films on YouTube, you, you, you should see quite yeah. a few. Sweet. Nice. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. So I'd like to move on to a discussion of some unfinished films. Um, I have two examples of films that were never realized for some of Hollywood's greatest directors. Uh, Monty Python alum uh, Terry Gilliam has tried for more than 20 years to finish his passion project 
the man who killed Don Quixote. According to Wikipedia, pre-production of the first version of the film started in 1998 with a budget of $32.1 million without American financing with John Rocafort as Quixote, Johnny Depp as Toby Grissoni, a 21st century marketing executive thrown back through time, and Vanessa Paradis as the female lead. Uh, shooting began in 2000 in Navarre in Spain, um, but a significant number of difficulties such as set and equipment dis- destroyed by flooding, the p- departure of Roquefort to, due to illness, problems obtaining insurance for the production and other financial difficulties led to a sudden suspension of the production and its subsequent cancellation. The original production was the subject of the documentary film Lost in La Mancha, which was intended to be the making of the film but was released on its own in 2002. Gilliam made several uh, repeated attempts to relaunch production between 2005 and 2015, which included the likes of Robert Duvall, Michael Palin, and John Hurt as Coyote. The most recent attempt to make the film was in 2016, after Gilliam announced it during the 2016 Cannes Film Festival. It was planned to start shooting in October of this year, with Palin as Coyote, Adam Driver as Grissoni, and Olga Korolenko as the female lead. The new version would be set in, modern, in the modern day with Grissoni as a director shooting a commercial and coming across a copy of his old student film, a retelling of the famous Don Quixote story, which leads him back to the little Spanish village where he shot it back in the day, only to get embroiled in a series of adventures and catastrophes. However, in October of 2016, it was announced that the production was delayed yet again as producer Paolo Bronco was able, unable to secure funds for the film. Gilliam, however, still intends to make the movie, stating, I will be dead before this film ends. Gilliam's project seems to be the definition of development hell. Uh, Matt, do you ever think we'll see the Gilliam's dream project on the big screen? I, and what can we expect? I really hope so, because he is such an interesting filmmaker, and... Like like you said there, he has such a passion for this project. Like this is his this is his dream project, and I, I would love nothing more to see him actually achieve it. Um, and and it's it kind of a double edged sword because theoretically, if he does finish this movie and he and he releases it, there's going to be such a uh, the bar is going to be set so high because it comes with so much history. In so much of a struggle to get it created, that it's it's going to be potentially a big disappointment. It, that could have an adverse effect on the audiences. But I mean, he like he's been struggling so long to get this made that I would love to see him do it. And I, I think that I think that he will achieve it. I I hope at least. But I think that he will be able to achieve it at some point. It's just. No telling when, but I, I think that he'll be able to to do it. Hopefully, or it could just be a completely cursed project that's never meant to meant to see the light of day. But um, I would love to see his his style used in this in this uh, sort of story. And I would give him uh, uh, a bunch of credit to make any changes or or to go his go his own way because he is such a unique and innovative filmmaker that I would love to see his take on it because um, he's such an interesting guy. What other films has he I'm not familiar with them. Oh, he what did. What other films has he done? He did uh, Brazil and Time Bandits uh, and uh, 12 Monkeys. 
Oh, he's Monday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, uh, what was the oh, one with uh, Robin Williams? Fisher King. Fisher, Fisher King. King. The Fisher King was the movie that he made after this failed, and mm-hmm. it was like the movie that he had to make under budget, on time, or he would never work in that town again. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And the thing is, and basically, that was a gun up to his head, and they said, listen, you're going to make this film, and it wasn't his script, you're going to make this film on, you know, on budget, on time, on budget, or under budget with this cast, or you will never make another movie again. Yeah. And I believe that's the one that Robin Williams won his, his, his Oscar mm-hmm. for Best yeah. Supporting Actor. Yeah. So that was his redemptive movie, and so they've let him loose on pretty much everything since then. Uh, even, you know, and, you know, and then to do whatever he wanted to do. And frankly, not being able to do this and find a good producer, because this is all, all the crap he's having with this is, is a producer's problem, mm-hmm. not a director's problem. It this is, is all, yeah. This is all, you know, if this was Harvey Weinstein, it would be right checks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this would be, you know, they would, they'd be doing this in Mexico or uh, whatever the new cheap, uh, you know, garden spot, not Vancouver, yeah. <laughs> uh, because they need someplace dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, which would probably still be Spain, but they've got Spanish studios and they've got places to do that, but they just need a producer who can... Yeah. Well, Terry yeah. Gilliam is 70. Yeah, I don't he's think he's young anymore either. You know, I'm not saying he can't make movies anymore, but you get to I mean, that age and... Pythons are starting yeah. to die off. I mean, yeah, he's, mm-hmm. he's an honorary Monty Python. just announced that which one of them has Alzheimer's? Terry, Terry Jones. I saw him last year at Dragon Con and he... Had to be assisted through answering every question. Oh, yeah. It had to be handled, and it was uncomfortable to watch it. Mm. I was like, he has dementia. Oh, but man. there, and they didn't announce it until the next year. That I hadn't he heard that. That's yeah, such a shame. Yeah, and he was the Terry was the was the intellectual python. He did mm-hmm. the crusades. He did the he right. historian. Yeah, he does the great yeah. documentaries. Mm-hmm. Right, and he was the one that. So they're 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 getting to that age where they're, they're they, he, there's a very small window for, mm-hmm. for for Terry to get this film made, but it, it should get made because there's so much in his in his career that every time you know it, it's what he's one of these visionary directors where, and I heard David Warner say this at DragonCon about about Terry because he worked with him on Time Bandits. Mm-hmm. Is that he puts what is in his mind on screen better mm-hmm. than yes any director that, that David Warner had ever worked with? Before. Oh, yeah. That last what was the last one he did with Imaginarium the, of Doctor Parnassus? No, 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 it was the one with the uh, the German Zero Theorem. Oh, Zero Theorem. Yeah. Zero Theorem. That got great reviews. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. totally whacked. It's all <laughs> yeah. And but this this seems more like a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. Like I said, he also needs Harvey Park, uh, Harvey Weinstein to mm-hmm. yeah. checks. I've always described Terry Gilliam as uh, Ridley Scott on acid, <laughs> and I think that's a, a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's super visionary, but he's weird, and I think it's amazing. Yeah, he's, he's a great director. Amazing yeah. director. So hopefully he gets made. Yeah. And finally today, I'd like to talk a little bit about one of Hollywood's arguably greatest directors, Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Um, any discussion about great directing includes Stanley Kubrick. Um you know, some people may say he's overrated. I used to think he was overrated. The thing about a Stanley Kubrick film is you'll watch it and you'll be, what is this? This is boring. I hate this. 
And then you'll watch it a second time if it's on HBO or something like that, and you're like, okay, this guy's a genius. <laughs> and uh, Stanley Kubrick was able to make arguably sound masterpieces in every genre that he tackled. Uh, Kubrick also abandoned many projects well into the production process, most notably his sweeping biopic of Napoleon Bonaparte. Kubrick was in talks in the 1970s with Jack Nicholson to play the general in a sweeping epic that I believe would have reshaped how historical films were made for decades to come. Kubrick may have been attempting to film the most historically accurate movie ever made. Most famously, his researchers compiled hundreds of index cards, each card detailing a single day in the life of the famous emperor in general. It was said Kubrick abandoned the project when a similar film, Waterloo, was released to mixed success. He instead turned to focus on another project, Barry Lyndon, using revolutionary camera equipment and techniques to create a film that more realistically transports audiences into the 18th century of Europe than any film. In recent years, rumors swirled, swirled that Kubrick's friend and director, Steven Spielberg, planned to bring Kubrick's script for Napoleon to the small screen with a television miniseries. Matt and Anthony, do you, th- do you wish Kubrick would have stuck with Napoleon, and what would, have you, what would you have hoped to see with, uh, with this picture? I First of all, I think that if, if they were to make it Today, and I think that I think that they they announced that it was going to be adapted or, or um, brought to I think HBO recently. Like this is when the, within the last couple months they they announced it. I don't know if it'll see the light of day or not, but yeah, I would have loved to see Kubrick do that. I mean, he was such a such a visionary director. Like he was, and like you said, he was a he was a genius, a legitimate genius. So he really brought his all to his films and that's one of the things that makes his films have so much staying power um, as far as Steven Spielberg or uh, yeah Steven Spielberg bringing it to uh, a miniseries first of all I think that I mean we're in a time now where television is really experiencing it's it's a new golden age where everything on well, television is a better medium today for um, telling complex and long-form stories um, that, I mean, I think it could really be successful there. But I think that uh, Spielberg uh, did AI, which was based on something Kubrick was, was going to do. And I don't think that was received very well. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember not really liking it. So we'll see what that would do. too long. There are a lot of mm-hmm. places that should stop. And yeah. Just yeah, and, and exactly. the last 10 minutes... Did not fulfill the promise of the beginning of the movie. Right. I, I just wish it would have been made because, like I said, he was trying... Every time he made, he made a movie, and mm-hmm. again, listening to a panel with Malcolm McDowell talk about Kubrick, he said he'd go into a genre, he'd make a movie, react to it, whatever the critics say, and say, I'm going to do this, and then go do, mm-hmm. you know, do a science fiction film that's arguably... One of the greatest science fiction films ever made in 2001 mm-hmm. to make Doctor Strangelove, which is a great political satire film, mm-hmm. to make Clockwork Orange, which is a low-budget movie, mm-hmm. after he had made 2001. He's always reacting to whatever people criticized him with. And, yeah. when, and if he had made Napoleon, I, I, I just feel it would have changed how he made historical movies. There's so much dramatic license that's taken 
when they bring history to the screen. And they don't need to. Right. Because the story, they just don't need to make it, oh, I want to change that Thomas Jefferson said this. I, no, no, just <laughs> use what Thomas Jefferson said and illuminate it for people. Because people get their history, not from books and reading stuff, but they get it so, so much of the, the public that has that are busy with their own lives gets their history from television, from movies, mm-hmm. and to get... And to have something that as, as historically accurate as this with this Napoleon mm-hmm. uh, would have changed the way we make movies. It would have been much more documentary style. Um, and it needs to be so that, that like, people don't have these misconceptions about history. Absolutely. Have you seen Waterloo? I have I, I, I like parts of it. I, the, thing is, the thing is that that... that the fact that the directors and producers of Waterloo hired the Soviet army and got them in a costume. And that when you're flying over and you see this French cavalry unit, full cavalry unit, charging at a British unit, and the unit goes into square. <laughs> the, the maneuver that you're supposed to go into when you're being charged by a cavalry unit in, and, and you piss your pants because you're going, oh my God, that's what it's supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And you see other things where you see the historical figures screaming and yelling the things they were screaming and yelling when Boucher of the Prussians were coming, come my children, come my children, they are calling us. Mm-hmm. And when the the general who was, who was sitting, who was standing next to uh, 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 one of the other generals has a his leg blown off by cannon and goes, my God, sir, my leg is blown off. <laughs> and, when, and the other general goes, my God, sir, it has. <laughs> that deadpan English way. Wow. You know, and, that's, and that was a four-hour movie. Wow. Gee. You know, ANC, you're lucky that ANC will show it uncut. Mm-hmm. You know, he would have been, well, he could have hired the Russian army again to do... Mm. To, 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 to do a lot of the, the movie scenes uh, we're better off today because of the, of the CGI armies that you can just program mm-hmm. and, and, and do that way but uh, that I mean that movie was is, is a kick in the gut you know, you know he, can, he probably just was watching it in, in whatever screening room is at the studio and going cancel it right. cancel it cancel wow. it can't do it so yeah, I mean, there, there's something to practical effects. I, I, I agree oh, yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. You know, actual people in, in costume. I, I agree. That's that's a kind of a lost art anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, a lot of things have, have been lost because we can animate right. over the screen. Right. right. There's yeah, a certain yeah. charm to it that's kind of yeah. gone. Uh, but I. I Stanley Kubrick was my favorite director for a long time, and he's still in my top five easily. Um, it's kind of an ev- evolutionary list I have of favorite directors, but he will always be in the top five, top ten. Um, and I would have loved to see him make more. He was not necessarily the most prolific director. I think he started making movies in the 50s. Mm-hmm. He made his last movie in 1999, so he was making movies for 50 years. And I think he's got about 22 or 3. I want to say like 16. Is it even 16? Yeah, yeah. And as, as, the, as his career winded, came you know, to a close, it was further and further in between projects. Right. Because, right. because he did would, would pick up these things, spend 3 or 4 years on them, and, get make, and either they got made or they got shelled because of mm-hmm. different reasons. Now, we only have a, a couple minutes to really go through this. I, I want to see if I could 
get a couple of picks from you guys from for movies that you would like to see that mm-hmm. or sequels that haven't been made that you'd like to to see on the screen. Tony, how about you? Yeah, mine's really quick. There's a documentary out there called Yodorovsky's Dune. It's about a Chilean filmmaker. Um, uh, Saw it, love it. Alejandro Yodorovsky. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have never heard of him. I had never heard of him. Uh, but the documentary is fantastic. He had basically every step up to filming planned out for a Dune interpretation, which is one of the greatest sci-fi stories ever told. Uh, one of the best sci-fi books ever written, definitely. Um, and so that story de- deserves a really great movie. And I think Alejandro Yodorovsky had a great interpretation planned uh, but it just never saw the light of day for uh, a multitude of reasons. And unfortunately, we have uh, the Dune movie that did come out, which I think has its moments, but not not a great movie. Um, so definitely go see Yodorovsky's Dune if you can find it. It's probably online somewhere to stream. It's a fantastic documentary. They have the man himself talking about his vision. It's a really, really great documentary, and I, I wish that movie would have been made. Nice. Um, my pick, like my go-to pick all the time has always been Stephen King's The Dark Tower, but we're getting it. It's coming Yay. out next summer. So Is they filmed it. It was supposed to be February, uh, but then they just delayed it because they needed time to do visual effects. So it's going to be sometime in the summer. Um, but it's filmed, it's, it's coming, and I'm so excited for it. But um, to actually pick a, uh, some uh, picks for this... Um, even though Neil Blomkamp hasn't really lived up to his potential, in my opinion, I am still very intrigued by his Alien 5 uh, concept art and everything. So I think that that would be a really interesting thing to see if it comes to fruition. I know that it was shelved or it was uh, put on the back burner because uh, Ridley Scott's making Alien Covenant, which that poster that they have for that is is pretty promising. Um, Excuse me, which... Uh Ridley Scott movie, which one is it? Oh, uh, Alien Covenant. It's coming out next May. Now, is that the sequel to Prometheus? Yeah, sequel to Prometheus. Yeah, sequel to Prometheus. Yeah, because they're doing well with Sigourney Weaver, and Scott had that put back the back burn. Yeah, got a sequel. That's the Alien 5 one. Yeah. Yeah. Is that Alien 5? Is it really going to happen, do you think? I hope so, because there's some really cool concept art. Yeah, so right. I hope so. Um, but the, the artist would trigger the whole idea. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. eager. Yeah. Sports going to be in it. Yep. That'd be great. Yeah. Yep. yep. All right. Yep. All those other sequels are just a dream. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I want to thank everyone. We're still battling how they're going to handle that. <laughs> One and two is okay. Three and everything after that. No questionable. Yeah. I think they're yeah. keeping under pressure somehow. Uh, Make it. Yeah. Make a timeline. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I hope they do. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming out this morning and listening to our presentation. We'd like to thank you for for lively discussion. Yeah, thank you, guys. You guys thank you. Yeah, thank awesome. you. Yeah. Awesome. Always fun. Always fun. Yeah. Thank you so thinking much. About, I'm thinking yeah. about director's cuts for next year. Oh, that would be cool. So we'll yeah. get to be in touch with you guys. Yeah. Nice. If you guys are interested in our podcast, I have business cards here, and I also have a solo podcast that's about the Twilight Zone. I'm watching it for the first time ever, so... Okay, so we are here in uh, in my car after recording our uh, Starbase ND panel with Mike George. Thank you once again to Starbase ND for having us back. 
Oh, man. Uh, so anyway, uh, what we're doing now is we're planning the next episode of the podcast. And what we're going to be doing is another Netflix Picks episode. And this time we're going to change it up. In the past, we've done... Um, We've picked just random numbers of each other's cue, uh, but this time we're going to, I have in my hand Tiny's phone, Tiny has in his hand my phone, and after taking numerous uh, uh, dick pics um, <laughs> on it, what we're doing, that's that's a joke, guys, that's, that's a joke. Um, anyway, what we're doing is we're looking through each other's list, and we're going to pick a title um, from each other's list for the other one to watch. And that that will be our episode for next week. And Tiny, have you picked what I should watch? I have. Okay, I'm still going through here. There's there's some that have stuck out to me. Um, oh man, there is a lot here to to figure out here. And I think I found one. Um, we agreed that we would just do movies, so <laughs> I like I had to kind of really really uh work to scroll past black mirror because i really wanted uh <laughs> to pick that for you but uh tiny why don't you go ahead and tell me what i am to watch for right. next week's episode absolutely um i don't know if you've seen this or not i hope you haven't because i think it's an underrated movie uh what i have selected for you is the movie contact oh nice yeah have you seen that awesome yet? i have not seen it nice. and i almost watched it uh for our review of arrival so okay um yeah, okay, awesome. I'll definitely watch that. Contact, sweet. Yeah, I think that movie gets a bad rap, but I like it. Nice. I picked one for you. It looks like you may have already started watching this. I don't know if you watched it entirely. Okay. But um, as you do have a leaning toward documentaries, I chose Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Awesome. Yes, which nice. I'm really excited for you to watch because I watched it. Um, at Heartland last year, and it was my probably my favorite movie that I saw at Heartland last year. So nice. Uh, so yeah. So that's it. Next week on the podcast for episode one ninety six, I believe it's one ninety six, and we're going to be doing <laughs> Netflix picks. Uh, both on Netflix, Tiny's going to watch Raiders. I'm going to watch um, Contact. Yep. I already almost forgot. <laughs> and we're going to convene and re- re- review them. <laughs> You sounded like a uh, like a turntable powering up. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah. So so that's it. And thank you guys for listening. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Obsessive Viewer, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more of our episodes at ovpodcast.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. The Obsessive Viewer's theme song is An Eclipse of Events and is provided by Loudlike from their EP Mistakes We Must Make. You can find that and more great music from them on iTunes and like their Facebook page at facebook.com slash loudlikemusic. Any and all feedback on the podcast is encouraged. You can email the hosts individually at matt, tiny, or mike at obsessiveviewer.com or send an email to the podcast in general at podcast at obsessiveviewer.com. Check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where we post movie and TV reviews and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theobsessiveviewer and follow us on Twitter at obsessiveviewer, at obsessivetiny, and at I am Mike White. 
If you want more obsessive content in your life, check out our sister site, obsessivebooknerd.com, for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com and subscribe to the podcast on the podcatcher of your choice. Again, thank you so much for listening. We love you. Be excellent to each other.